Get ready for a week-long celebration of music, community and fabulous fun with Joy Radiothon 2024. Joy has the largest collection of rainbow podcast content in the world and you can help keep us out loud and proud by donating during Joy Radiothon 2024. Just go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. Mark it in your calendars because Joy Radiothon returns June 1st to 7th. And remember, we all flourish with joy. Hi, this is Brian Fuller, and you're listening to Geeks Out on Joy. <laughs> well, oh, first, um, Brian, welcome to Geeks Out. Thank you so much for having me. So Queer for Fear, this is probably very personal for you. Uh, what first drew you to horror? You know, the, the, honestly, I think the first thing that drew me to horror was the monster serials, uh, you know, and Count Chocula and Frankenberry and Booberry. <laughs> there was something about these characterizations of things that I knew were monsters that had been portrayed as monsters, yet they were kid-friendly and defanged and just as afraid of scary things as everybody else. So there was this this humanization of the monster, you know, with Frankenberry and Count Chocula and Booberry that humanized them in a way that I, I, I think the, you know, the idea was to sell sugar cereals, <laughs> but for me, it presented a, a lens on being a monster that was super accessible for me as a child and that I related to them. So I, I instantly related to Frankenberry and, and Count Chocula because they were just as afraid of ghosts as anybody else. And that made me identify with being a monster more than I identified with not. So I mean, that would be is, my first foray. Yeah. There is like a, a slew of kid friendly horror out there. There's, you know, yes. goosebumps. There's, um, you know, I remember the old Hanna-Barbera cartoons. There were a few as well. Uh, Wizard of Oz. Wizard of Oz. Return to Oz is terrifying. Return to Oz is, uh, is an amazingly subversive movie. Horror, a horror favorite. So uh, when, when making Queer for Fear, um, you know, you're probably talking about it a bit. Are heterosexual folk surprised when they learn how queer horror actually is? You know, it's interesting because uh, we had an Outfest screening a few months ago and I had, you know, straight friends in the audience and even they who are allies and 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 not necessarily bigoted in, in any way were like, you know, Brian, not everything is, is, is queer. <laughs> and, and it was such a fascinating reaction because... Uh, it, it was, it was a good barometer, I think, for a lot of folks who are going to watch this, who may not be, uh, identify as being queer in any way, shape, or form, are, are going to have the feelings of like, you know, not everything is this queer. And they're, they're really projecting their agenda onto these stories. But I, I, I think we did a pretty good job of illustrating just why it's yeah. all queer. And they saw the same show that you did and still walked away with that question. So there's, there's some veil of, of, uh, predisposition against queerness that, that, that they weren't getting through as allies that I found mm -hmm. fascinating. And I'm, I'm really excited about the people that it's going to piss off. I mean, that would be fun. yeah. I mean, part one, you, you did a deep dive into Mary Shelley, um, Bram Stoker, 
Nosferatu in the the Weimar Republic. Uh, uh, Boris uh, Karloff as Frankenstein. James Whale. Uh, you know all of this stuff. I'm I'm not a history buff, but all of this stuff. You know, it, like it really heartens this genre experience. It, it it does redefine it in a way, and I and I love your choice of word with heartens because I think that's that's the best word for it. It does hearten uh, the horror experience because it makes it personal. It makes some of these thematics that are used to, you know, terrify or, or create anxiety in the audience. That when you start to shift the perspective a little bit, you realize that the the monsters, I mean, that's the wonderful thing about the universal monsters. They're all misunderstood in some way. And the misunderstood monster is as old as the horror genre itself. I mean, that kind of ties into queer culture as well, because, you know, especially in drag culture that I've seen, we have a tendency to portray the traditionally ugly as beautiful and the traditionally yes. beautiful as ugly. Yes. That's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. And I, and I think that there is, you know, that sensibility, whether you call it camp or whether you call it just kind of a, a queer lens, there's something about uh, taking society's definitions of acceptability and tossing them out the window and redefining them for ourselves of, of what is acceptable, what is true morality, what is true ethics and 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 removing certain factors of identity that may prejudice an, an audience member against a character from a specific background and that's certainly infinitely relatable for 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 people everywhere like we're we're used to a preconception about who we are and what we do because we're seen as perverts first and mm. human beings second if we get to second I mean, we do like to say in this show that uh, we're not perverts because we're queer. We're just perverts who happen to be queer. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's, it's that, it's that's uh, Kevin Williamson's quote. You know, it's not uh, horror, horror movies don't create serial killers. Horror movies make serial killers more creative. So it's, <laughs> it's like, you know, queers didn't create perverts, but we certainly make perverts more creative. Definitely. Now, uh, your body of work, you've, you've got some definite horror influences. You've got Dead Like Me. Um, yes. There's a little bit in Pushing Daisies, like, you know, it's the macabre, it's death. Uh, yes. You've got the really raw, pun intended, Hannibal. <laughs> yes. uh, how, how did your love of horror, um, how did your queer experience influence the making of these things? Well, I think, you know, I think uh, Pushing Daisies is, is very clearly like an AIDS allegory. Mm. Uh, and and I do think because it's, you know, they're in the aughts. And so coming out of the 90s and, you know, testicles dropping in the 80s and being well informed that any action I took with those drop testicles was likely a death sentence, mm. uh, there became this inexorable tie between sexuality and death. And so there was something about pushing daisies and the prophylactic romance between the pie maker and Chuck as, as something that was very relatable coming into to sexuality where intimacy can be deadly. And, and I think with dead like me, it was really about a life cut short. Uh, 
and the wish fulfillment of, of, you know, if you had been trying to avoid living a life and then your life was cut short and then you were forced to live the life that you were resisting living when you were alive, but now you have to do it when you're dead and you still have to pay rent. There was something about that that was, you know, kind of a, a little bit of, of a poem to all those people who died so young. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, of course, in Hannibal, you have this incredible sexual tension between Hugh Dancy and Mads Mikkelsen on screen, which yes, yes. I know has blown so many people away. Yeah, it, well, and that, you know, for me was really about combing the queerness of Anthony Hopkins' performance of, of Hannibal Lecter and Science of the Lambs, which is so effete and aesthetically driven and uh, mannered and, you know, almost mincing that it just screamed queer to me in a way that I was like, yay, we've got an interesting queer character. It's not, you know, John Hurt and, and partners with Ryan O'Neill in 1980. It's, it's like somebody who is, uh, you know, I guess he is sort of a caricature, but he's the, he's the kind I love. Uh, there's something about that that felt like, well, let's, let's explore that side of Hannibal Lecter as, uh, you know, at least initially ideologically queer and then, uh, revealing that he is pansexual, that he is sexually, uh, uh, you know, voracious. <laughs> yeah, it was absolutely wonderful. Do you think horror is going to remain intrinsically queer the more we see LGBTQA plus heroes emerging in media? Well, I, I think there will be a balance. You know, I'll, I'll quote Clyde Barker. I saw him speak recently at an Outfest event and somebody asked him the same thing about the future of horror being queer. And he said, the future is queer because we are moving away from binary de definitions of how to be that that is inviting an implicit queerness, whether it is a rise in awareness of transness or non-binariness or bisexuality or pansexuality, all of these sort of binary restrictions that we've been living with until relatively recently have, have kind of been removed. So you're removing the bars in an ice tray and it all becomes one block of ice that, that feels like futuristic queerness that we're, we're, you know, I, I know so, I, I have, I have a few friends that are in throuples and their relationships are more healthy than most of the relationships that I, I mean, see. Hard same. Right, right. Yeah. And it's yeah. fascinating. And, the, and not just, just queers, but heterosexuals and yeah. are, you know, one member of the, the, the trilogy is, is heterosexual and then two are bisexual and, and, you know, finding that ease of being and, and new definitions of how to have a relationship, I find very exciting. And I guess because I'm being exposed to it, I assume that it's just going to be a little bit more ubiquitous, that we're going to find those non-binary expressions of, of self to be more and more commonplace. And therefore, the future is here, is, is, is queer. Absolutely. Um, I really want to know, you know, in Queer for Fear, were there any specific figures you were really keen on bringing in to bring their perspective to the story? 
that that we didn't get or that we did get uh both really i mean there were a ton that we didn't get and you know there were a lot of folks that are kind of uh queer allies and and queer icons that because they're not queer themselves they were like i'm not queer i don't feel comfortable talking about it even though uh, the conversation is much looser than that so there were a lot of people who uh were afraid to represent queerness when they themselves were not queer and, and the kind of that, that overreaction to appropriation that may be coming from the right place, but we, we would have loved to have heard what they had to say. And I think for people that, that we did hear from that was, that was very moving for me personally was hearing Oz Perkins talk about his father's experience as a closeted queer actor in the, you know, fifties and sixties onward. That was a privilege because that, that, that is something that Oz doesn't talk about publicly that, you know, his, his, you know, that, you know, pedigree of, of his life isn't something that he shares and he decided to share it with us. And that felt like a huge honor. It's it's such an incredible thing uh, hearing these stories, especially from folks who grew up in the time of the Hayes Code. Right, right. Um, how do you think that's affected the the psyche of a lot of queer viewers? Well, you know, I, I mean, for me personally, I I love the metaphors of the Hayes Code, and I think you can look at you know specifically James Whale's work and how the Hayes Code actually was conducive to him telling perhaps, you know, his most queer story, you know, arguably his most queer story. And I think old dark house is, is, is probably his queerest film, but that was when things were, were not under restriction. And mm. then, you know, his, his first three horror movies were not under restriction. And then when he got to the bride of Frankenstein, it's a doozy of a movie mm. and it's, it's so odd and that you feel him navigating the codes to really communicate a depiction of queer life in, in Hollywood that you wouldn't necessarily look at through mm. that, that lens without knowing the history. You wouldn't look at Colin Clive or Elsa Lanchester or Boris Karloff or Ernest Thessinger as, as, as queer depictions or depictions of queerness at that time but they sort of were it's it's really wonderful how that those restrictions really forced more creativity in allegory yeah i mean i i i liken it to interpreting a poem i remember in english class when we sat down and looked at batter my heart three person god by john dunn and we broke down line by line and it blew my mind because i loved that he was he was using an economy of words but was saying so much about his relationship to his sexuality and to his religion and the kind of subdom you know instincts of wanting to surrender to a greater power yet that power doesn't approve of you and and all of that was was for me mind-blowing in an english class uh and and i love that aspect of looking at horror movies and finding the interpretation and finding the you know forensically deconstructing an artist's intentions with the uh the work and and finding greater meaning 
as a result is is part of the the puzzle box like we're working over this thematic puzzle box and then we get all of the colors uh, you know of the rainbow on one side and yeah. it feels very satisfying um whereas like explicit representations are are less engaging for me because it's kind of a one-to-one correlative and i'm very excited about billy eichner's movie bros uh you know and that is a, a mainstream expression uh with explicit representation that we desperately need for people to be able to see themselves um but i also like seeing myself in things where not everybody else could for sure now unfortunately that's all the time we have for today brian thank you so much for joining us on geeks out thank you Miranda. thank you for having me this podcast was produced by joy media you can support joy's diverse sound and diverse community this june by donating to joy radiothon 2024 go to joy.org.au slash radiothon and remember we all flourish with joy 